Welcome to episode 53 of Paper Talk, a monthly series of podcast interviews featuring artists and professionals who are working in the field of hand paper making and paper art. I'm Helen Hebert, and I run Helen Hebert Studio, a hand paper making studio in Colorado's Rocky Mountains, where I create artist books and installations. I write a weekly blog called The Sunday Paper, featuring stories of people doing exciting, innovative, and beautiful things with paper. Sign up at HelenHebertStudio.com slash blog. I'm also creating a lot of content over here, and the best way to stay up to date is to join my newsletter list to learn about my online classes, workshops, how-to books, and the annual Redcliffe Paper Retreat, and my new papermaking masterclass, which takes place right here at Helen Hebert Studio. You can sign up at HelenHebertStudio.com. Today I'm talking with Robin Silverberg, a paper and book artist in Brooklyn, New York. I have long admired Robin's content-rich artist books that show off her unique papermaking techniques. We had a lovely, meandering conversation about her first paper sculptures, how she started creating artist books while living in Vienna, Austria, but didn't even realize that was a genre. She returned to New York when she discovered there were others making artist books. She'd found her tribe. And I can't remember the date, but in the early 90s, there was a a show at the American Craft Museum um, of book uh, art. And it was, uh, or maybe it was a paper art, because it was, yeah, because the Douglas Howell show was there. I think that was what it was. And mm-hmm. I remember Catherine Clark did a, a, a ceramic book, and there were a few very unusual, and I thought, this is what I'm doing, and I'm doing it in isolation, and no right. one knows what I'm doing in Europe, and I don't know anyone doing this in Europe. Uh, what am I doing? I should be coming back. And that's a oh. So then the third year, I decided I needed to transition back to New York, because that You know, I didn't know where these people were, but I knew they were in the States and not in Europe. Robin currently has a 30-year retrospective at Pratt Institute in Brooklyn, and she took me on an audio tour describing some of the works having to do with the book as an object, women, language, transformative reading, and much, much more. One fun fact, Robin and I were on Sesame Street with a bunch of cute kids making paper in the mid-1990s. Heck, we were kids then ourselves. You can find the link to the episode in the show notes. Enjoy our conversation. Robin Silverberg, welcome to Paper Talk. Well, thank you very much. Yeah, yeah. I was thinking this morning about how long I've known you, and um, we're going to talk about your 30-year retrospective, and I think I've known you almost 30 years because I moved to New York in... 91 and I think I met you working through no I moved to New York earlier I started working at Dudonay paper mill in 1991 and um did we work on responsive hands the children's program together at Dudonay yeah started uh, I helped you with that and we started working with uh, the kids garden and paper make and that whatever that Tribeca school is I can't even remember and yeah, great time. And yeah, yeah, we, yeah. we did uh, uh, Sesame Street together. <laughs> That's right. We have a we have a long history. Yeah, Sesame yeah. Street was so much fun, and I'll post a link to that on the podcast yeah. page yeah. again. <laughs> <laughs> again, yeah, it's been around. Um, anyway, I'm more famous with three and four year olds than I am with 
any other age group in the world. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Have you ever have you ever met anyone who said I saw you on Sesame Street? <laughs> Unbelievable number of people. Yeah. yeah. Said that. I mean, I I cannot tell you how many times people have said that to me. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. I'm always a little surprised, but kind of, you know, that's kind of a nice thing. They yeah. always ask them, did you meet Big Bird? Did you big meet Bird? <laughs> Right, right. For listeners, there were no no characters on this show. <laughs> uh, well, wonderful. So I'm looking forward to talking about your retrospective. But let's start. Let's uh, let me hear a little bit about your childhood and creativity and how uh, how you came to paper. Well, childhood and how I came to paper is a little bit different. But I did come to books as a young child because I was a very sickly child and I was often home in bed and I always made books and I wrote books and drew books. So that is kind of lodged somewhere, although I never really connected it in, except for you're now asking me. Um, I did uh, always make books as a little kid. And uh, the paper, the paper came later. I mean, I've always loved paper and I've always enjoyed handling it. Um, But actually, in my senior year at Princeton University, um, I was working with a professor in the print department, or actually took an, uh, a print course in the art history department, but he was head of the print department at their museum. So we actually handled prints, originals. And when you hold a, uh, a Dürer or a, a Rembrandt, which we were allowed to do, you immediately or I immediately, I can't speak for everybody, but I immediately not only were in awe of the image, but I was actually really in awe of the material and asked him very quickly, like, why is this so different than the stuff I've ever touched? And he Mm -hmm. gave me a book and I started reading. And so I, you know, started like often many people have started, particularly in those days, we're talking about the seventies, there were very few programs. I was just, you know, in my bathtub mashing up things and trying to figure it out. But that was the entry point. Right, right. And where did you grow up? Did you grow up in New York? Oh, well, I grew up in Montreal, or my Montreal. first my first almost 10 years and then moved to New York, yes. Okay. And you went to Princeton and you were were you studying art? Yes, I double majored in sculpture. Well, I was uh, majored in art history in the department in the program of visual arts. They allowed 15 of us to be artists. No one else was. Uh, and so I did an art history thesis and a studio show. So, yeah. Okay. And I'm just curious about the making books as a child, because I was a sickly child also. And I, I did creative things when I stayed home from school, but, and I watched a lot of TV, but um, I don't think I, I made TV. books. What? So I never watched TV and I was always a reader. I was a voracious reader mm-hmm. as a child, at least one book a week. You know, mm-hmm. I'm talking about even when you're up in the, the long books. I really, really, it was always reading. So when I was in bed and there was never TV, I never watched TV as a kid. Um, I, you know, would have piles of paper. I always did a lot of art. I also wrote a lot of poetry and I was always writing and drawing. And I think the earliest books I made were like Dr. Seuss-like, where I created phantasmagoric countries and lands and and wrote poetry about these not you know these fictional things and places and stuff I think uh-huh. it went starting there and you know that's that's what I did I mean it was always something I was always making art I was always writing I was always reading those I was one of those kind of kids <laughs> right. climb tree. I climbed trees with adults <laughs> to make up for it <laughs> <laughs> there you go okay so um 
so did you say this professor gave you a book or how did you get to making paper in your bathtub? You know, I, I'm not, I wish I could, I, I wish I could say I remember exactly. He gave me something to read and I don't remember what it is. And mm -hmm. that's really mm -hmm. unfortunate. Um, but he did give me something to read and he told me about it. And then I started trying to find out. I remember I went to Firestone, which is the library at Princeton, and I got some books. And I just started trying to figure this, like, wait a minute, this gorgeous material, the, 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 the haptic experience of holding old paper is just something that everyone should be required to do. I think mm -hmm. they'd have another appreciation of, of the material and of the experience of reading if they could do that. And uh, so we can always thank Tim Barrett, et cetera. But um, it, it was it, it was a real pivotal thing for me. It was a visceral thing, and I made my senior thesis. I would say fifty percent of the sculptures I made were made out of paper, and so I already had. And they were sculptural works, but I really had an affinity and a kinship to this material. Its malleability, its 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 variability, its mm -hmm. surface. It just it just resonated for me very very early on without knowing anything about anything really which is right and what were you actually making sheets or were you doing like paper mache or what were these sculptures just sort of well the sculpture story is kind of interesting because i am it for many years it doesn't happen now because i guess i'm getting i'm older <laughs> but when i was younger i would dream finished art i would dream that i was walking through cavernous spaces and i would see artworks and then in the morning i would get up and i would sketch them and i would try to make them um in, so my thesis work, not, I wasn't making handmade paper for the thesis, actually. I was just learning and thinking about that started later. Mm -hmm. But I was making paper, woven papers, like ripping them up and, and making them into like forms and then weaving. I did these gigantic walk-in cavernous things built on, uh, woven onto metal, giant metal frames that I welded. And, and I did a lot of things with strings. So then there was a lot of twisting and I mean, it was just processes, mm -hmm, but... Mm -hmm using found paper and that of course as a you know a student not having access to good materials we don't have we didn't in the 70s have you know kate's papery and all the, right. the, the paper that is available today um i was using pretty crappy paper and the stuff was falling apart as i was making it and that was what was frustrating me and so i talked right. to my professor but uh, when i started making paper in my bathtub that was actually the Following year, I moved to Boston. I did some. I was doing some work. I was studying at graduate work at the Boston Museum School, and I was teaching at a federal program, after school program. I was their art teacher, and that's when I was really working in my bathtub. I would mash stuff up in, in you know, however I could, reading about cooking things and trying to make plants. And that was the bathtub. I didn't do the bathtub stuff at actually Princeton. Okay. That was yeah. Yeah. yeah, right. And then and so then what happened next? Then I decided I wanted to move to Europe. I figured I had no idea. That, I mean, I met Donna Koretsky and I made Elaine Koretsky and they actually offered me an internship at their studios. I decided, but that was after I'd already made the decision to go to Europe and I decided not to uh, change my path. I figured Europe is where there's all these mills and there's all this paper and all this history and I am a sculptor and I would move there. So I moved to Europe for and lived actually in, I ended up in Vienna for three years. Um, and I trained in bookbinding and restoration because when I tried to uh, go to mills and see if they would take me, you know, they kind of looked at me like I was a nut. I, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, it's not like I'm going to, oh, I'm going to give you my family secrets. I don't know who you are, but let's let you let, just yeah. come on in and do it. They just, that's 
just not how it worked, at least at that time. Maybe they are transitioning more now, but certainly then not. This was, you know, 1981. And so I, uh, but I had been, you know, you know, experimenting quite a lot. And so when I actually met a woman my age who had just finished her master studies in bookbinding and set up her own bookbindery and was very unhappy about being alone. She wanted to have more people working with her. So she invited me in and her idea was I would teach her my skills and she would teach me her skills. I got the much better of the deal is my <laughs> feeling. <laughs> because uh -huh. I, I learned to bookbind and do restoration. Um, we set up a paper mill in the basement of the book studio and uh, got actually a wooden a Hollander from the one of the few working mills, uh, hand mills in, in Austria, in Waldviertel, and um, had to take this wooden Hollander and put it in a vat for six months because it had to re-swell. It wasn't being used. Uh -huh. It was... It's about like a, a meter and a half in, wow. in it was a small thing. Um, but the, the elderly man who was running the mill used this gigantic thing, which was a stone structure and, you know, built into the foundations and everything. And so he gave me that. And, and so the, I had to wait six months even to be able to use that. And then I had no idea how to use a Hollander. I didn't know. <laughs> right. Of course, I figured it all out. I reinvented the wheel. I had to, I was reading books, what is sizing? And like, and, and, and I would go into the, fields with my friends to learn about Austrian plants and then take them back and experiment. I was really, you know, really stone age papermaking, trying to figure it out. But I was in a book bindery and Michaela expected me to do the restoration, the pulp restoration work for all the books that she was restoring. Uh -huh. So I had to very quickly kind of get <laughs> up at least every level so that I could, you know, do the spot repairs. And I was doing all that. And, uh, um, and I mean, what I did give her actually was that, you know, I had all this art training and she was just, she had no art training. So I designed things, anything, you know, she mm -hmm. was there, I mean, the traditional bookbinding um, in some parts of Europe are, you know, you know, not the high end fine binding, but just the, the, the trade binding, it, you know, with the same ugly marble papers used again and again. So I really right. tried to develop a design element to her, her work and to mine there. Yeah, and so you were, what, 23 when you went? I was 21. 21, so you yeah, were? I was 24. Okay, <laughs> so you were there for three years. Did you speak German already, or? I didn't speak a word of German, but, you know, the interesting thing about Vienna is that it's, um, the Viennese dialect is, uh, has an enormous amount of Yiddish in it, um, because there was mm. such a long uh, at one point, strong Jewish population and important in the in 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 Vienna. Of course, they that disappeared. Yeah. Um, so when people started talking, and I was also in a political organization, a peace organization called Servus. So I was very connected oh, into yeah. a whole peer group. I was meeting. I was living in a what's called a Wohnungsgemeinschaft, which means a group hall, uh, apartment where you know a lot of people, you know, sort of hippie living. Yeah. And um, but. Um, I I quickly picked up German. I mean, at, at 21, I, it took about six months and mm -hmm. it sounded familiar. My mother's first language was Yiddish and she was a Yiddish actress actually in the Yiddish theater in Montreal. And so mm -hmm. I loved hearing Yiddish, although right. I didn't really speak it. It was my parents' private language, but it was completely familiar to me. So six months fluent. 
pretty much. Right, right. Well, that's something else we share because I spent time in Germany and learned to speak German. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so were you were you making your own work at this time too? Were you being an artist or were you, were you mostly just so learning about paper? Not at all. Mm-hmm. It, for the first, I think, year and a half, I really, I mean, I had so much to learn and Miki yeah. wanted me to do everything. So one of the 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 jokes was the she basically said you're a beginner so you get 20th century and i'll get the previous centuries which is pretty hilarious sometimes you know because like you're sitting there working with a you know a book of picasso prints or something right right panic stricken um and and the first book i ever glued in i glued in upside down of course uh you know that kind of thing you know fortunately it it was reversible but still you know it was just absolutely an absurd situation but she uh-huh. had hated her leagang her apprenticeship which had been so strict and so she wanted to do it in an innovative way so it was sort of a trial by fire and i failed a lot of it and i passed some of it so that was that was how that worked um yeah but after about a year i began to really miss my art and mm-hmm. um and and had this skill set and so i you know because i was in a bindery and and with a paper mill to its side i just started making things mm-hmm. and i started making small sculptural objects that were you know about this you know this big for not about <laughs> 4 to 6 inches in size experimenting and 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 call, started calling them book objects because a lot of them had layers so and then eventually actually by the end of that second year i had pieces going into there was uh, in europe there was a movement of, of that of textile so miniature textile expositions there were these exhibitions very very regularly where people would send in miniature or small format textile works, which was a, a really a growing movement at the time. Mm-hmm. And so that was where I started showing my work actually first in Europe. And uh, Kumi Korf actually recently wrote me to congratulate about the show and mentioned that we were in a show together very early on in that field. So that was kind of interesting. But, wow. and then the other part was that I once a year came home to visit my parents in New York and there was, and I can't remember the date, but in the early 90s, there was a, a show at the American Craft Museum um, of book uh, art. And it was, uh, or maybe it was a paper art, because it was, yeah, because the Douglas Howell show was there. I think that's was what it was. And mm-hmm. I remember Catherine Clark did a, a, a ceramic book, and there were a few very unusual, and I thought, this is what I'm doing, and I'm doing it in isolation, and no right. one knows what I'm doing in Europe, and I don't know anyone doing this in Europe. Uh, what am I doing? I should be coming back. And that's, so then the third year I decided I needed to transition back to New York because that, you know, I didn't know where these people were, but I knew they were in the States and not in Europe. Okay. Right. So you moved back where did you move in with your parents or did you move out on your own or? Uh, Very quickly out of my, I I came back with, with a husband. Oh, Okay. (laughs) Thing, and that's not for today. Right. Um, I moved in, you know, I, I moved out on my own and I really had to support myself and actually my husband who had to learn English at the time. Um, so I was, you know, I came back thinking at first, oh, maybe I'll just get a degree in, in, in paper restoration. NYU had a wonderful program, but mm-hmm. they didn't allow their students to work at the time. And then I actually applied and got a, almost got a job at uh, the Guggenheim to do curatorial work because I had this art history degree. 
and then realized, why would I want to be killing myself for 19,000 a year, five days a week, you know, 11 and a half months a year, and not doing what I really want to do. So I really started to try to figure out how the whole thing fits together as all artists in their late, you know, mid 20s, you know, how do you do this? And Mm -hmm. I wanted to keep my eye on the ball. I wanted to learn more. I wanted to make art. And um, those were the two things I wanted to learn in I realized at that point that I needed to do artist books. I was started doing artist books already in at the end, towards the end of my stay in, in Europe, not knowing that there was a word called artist books, but that's right. What, so. Right. So let's fast forward a little bit to, I know you have Dobbin Mill Dobbin books and that started quite a while ago. Um, yes. In late 88, um, I, set up this studio here and it's called Dobbin Mill because I live on Dobbin Street, but I actually am in the horses stables of that was, you know, was in this, uh, on this street. Um, it was the horses stables for the factories in the area. Dobbin means old workhorse or workhorse in, in a in, in not quite used English or not any more used English. Ah. And this is in Brooklyn. So I'm in Brooklyn. Yeah. It's on the bo- I'm exactly on the border between Greenpoint and Williamsburg. I found this old building, and uh, my hu- uh, my present husband Andras and I have been for you know the 30 years or over 30 years we're here uh, renovating and fixing it up mm-hmm. and uh, changing it. And it's now double the size. It's over 7,000 square feet. Um, and I have a paper mill, and I have a, my book studio. And we also have, you know, wood shop and sculpture studios and gardens where I grow my plants uh, when I want them. Mm-hmm. I usually want them for the joy of having plants in New York City, but <laughs> I do grow a lot of paper making plants. And um, yeah, it's a great place. A and great your place. husband, Andrash, is an artist also. Yes. Just so Andrash is a sculptor uh, from Budapest, Hungary, and, um, and he's been here uh, since the mid eighties and uh, goes back and forth quite a bit, but is a really, a really talented and wonderful sculptor. Yeah. Right. And we've done collaborative books together over the years too. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, um, so how did you start making artist books and cobbling together a living? I remember Robin, uh, when I was in my mid twenties, so you're, you're just a little bit older than me. You telling me sort of, just saying, you know, this is hard. It's not easy to make it as an artist. This is how much money I make a year. Blah, uh-huh. blah, blah. You were very frank and I really appreciated that. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, I, it was really a patchwork of a lot of things. I ended up teaching uh, my first, I mean, many, many, I first did a million different freelance jobs, uh, a model building for an inter, an architect and all sorts of things. But I eventually settled on uh, teaching um, I got a job teaching art history at, at, at a private school here in New York City. Um, it was at the time a required course to graduate. And they also, when they saw my artwork, they were fascinated and they let me set up a book arts program there. But I taught only, I made a decision very early on that even if all the jobs together meant a hundred hour work week, I was never going to take anything but a part-time job. And so the, that teaching job, the high school teaching job was really three days a week, basta. I also uh, started working in paper studios. I put in, uh, I did a short internship at Dunane. Um, I then worked and convinced 
David Russell to let me run his studio in exchange for getting space to do my own artwork at night. And then when I was here um, and I realized, oh my God, I have a studio, I need to set it up. What I did was um, I taught classes. Um, I set up the paper making program at Center for Book Arts. I taught their first classes. Um, I continue to do my own teaching. Um, I taught art history. Um, I did about seven or eight different things to keep things cobbled together. But one at one, I, I produced artwork for other artists who didn't make right. papers. I did artwork productions, um, and I all and did you know one-on-one -on -one workshops and things like that. And at a certain point, I realized that if I wasn't really rigorous and strict with myself that I would be giving out my energy and time to everyone else to pay bills and also just to keep things running. And so what I did um, by, my, by the age of 30, I made a decision that at every step I had to make a decision of what is it that I wanted to do and what could I let go without, you know, losing, you know, not being able to eat at night. And I just kept getting rid of different jobs and projects to keep my eye on the ball that I wanted to be producing my artwork. And um, that worked and that I was lucky. And I have to say I was lucky because mm -hmm. I think that not everybody can manage to do that and right. can manage to pull it off. But I think, you know, I did. And um, with also help from Andrush because we were together. So we basically, you know, the years that he wasn't selling, I was selling, we complemented each other and helped each other out. But, um, you know, really put the art making first for years and still do. <laughs> so. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So your your main work is artist books and you you make all of the paper for your yes. artist books. So in my main work is artist books. I also would include in that installation work, but mm -hmm. I conceive of the installation as an artist book too, mm -hmm. as a three-dimensional artist book space that you enter and you move through. And and I there are a few books that have not been made from handmade paper. Um, but, you know, I think when you have a skill set, you all, you fall back on it. Even, yeah. you know, like it's a natural thing. It's like, I can do at this point in my life, anything I want with paper. So occasionally, you know, there's a wooden box, you know, you know, or there's, there's a piece of cloth or whatever, of course, and I'm not averse to it, but my skill set is so deeply invested in. So, you know, I can just, Solutions come in paper, and I love it, so I do it. Yeah, and it's I make artist books often with my own paper too, and it's almost it's like harder to figure out uh, another paper because you you know so much about paper and can make it yourself. It's like, well, yes, and also you know if you want that sh that page to have a rattle to it, mm -hmm. you can make the rattle exactly the way you want it. If you want a piece of you want translucency in a certain section because you want people to see through, you can just make it. I mean, you can't go out and find those things. Um, you know, there was a period early on when I had the studio here for a number of years that I made paper for New York Central Supply. And, you know, I, mm -hmm. I both, yeah. our beloved and lost art store, the best paper supply in the world. Mm -hmm. Other people I don't want to offend, but <laughs> I love it very dearly. And then at a certain point, I realized that the paper was my signature, that people identified the qualities to also my work. And so I started pulling that out. And David used to always say to me, you know, anytime you want to make paper again for this for the store, I'm always waiting for you. But I actually did stop that after about five years. It didn't make sense. And yeah. um, 
Yeah. So, you know, there's certain things that, you know, I can, I, if some, if, if you, one of your books was put in front of me, I would know it's your book without mm-hmm. even having to see a signature and because I can, I, I know what your paper looks right. like. Feels yeah. Like. Yeah. End of mine. Yeah. Yeah. So um, tell me about your first or one of your first artist books with your paper. Oh, an that's early one. You can't very, think of one. I didn't prepare you for this. You did not prepare me. <laughs> I mean, actually, I didn't prepare any of this thing. But um, honestly, uh, I mean, I have to say, my earliest books were all failures from my perspective, and I have a lot of them here because you know, I mean, that my the first years I just did one-offs until 1990. 92 maybe all my books were just one-offs pretty much uh-huh. um i did one edition there was a letterpress edition but we will not even think about that i never it was so awful um, <laughs> well let's go there so so you did one of a kind books and you were showing them were you selling um occasionally but very very rarely because i actually knew let's say tony zwicker and i became acquainted and i loved her and she's a artist book dealer the mother of the of the artist book world of of new york virtually i mean she Mm -hmm. was a dealer um Mm -hmm. that promoted artist books european and american had a large space on gramercy park and you could just disappear into her wonderland of books Mm -hmm. and information in a way that I don't think, you know, I will ever get again. Um, And um, she was brilliant, but she would ask me, can I see your work? And I would say, not yet, Uh because I knew it was not good enough. And I Uh I respected her and I knew, I knew Tony well enough that she would say, this is really awful. Why are you showing this to me? You know, she with this you know, heavy Swiss German accent. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, you know, I really used to, I used to visit her and I wouldn't show her my work until I felt it was good enough. I mean, you know, you, you know, I studied art history. I mean, I looked at art. I knew what right. it, it took a long time for me to get it good enough. It took years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, yeah. But, you know, at a certain point, I, I did start selling work in in the... I would say in the mid nineties, I started selling, but I started selling really, I'm a really slow beginner on all of that um, because it really was not where my eye on the ball was. I was mm-hmm. really wanting to make something significant and make a statement worth having. And, you know, maybe because I didn't go to an art school where they, you know, start promoting student work for sale immediately. It just didn't occur to me as a priority. Um, when I really, really wanted to start selling regularly um, was, uh, and it became more important to me, was in the late 90s. Like by 98, 99, I really was ready. And one of the decisions I made around, probably about that time was to A, try to make additions more regular. I already started making additions in the early 90s, but to make additions because it mm-hmm. took so long to design something that if there was more than one that would make sense. Not that I wanted to make hundreds. My edition sizes are 5, 10, 15 generally. Mm-hmm. Um, but to make more than one and to make something that closed. I mean, I made a lot of book objects early on. Coming as a, you know, coming as a trained sculptor, right. it, you know, 
there was pagination perhaps, or there was movement through sequence, or there was certain ideas, or there was text mixed up in a sculptural form. But at a certain point I realized if I wanted to promote my work and sell it, and I didn't just want it in exhibition format, um, it needed to close. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. Shut the door kind of thing, because that container concept was really, really an important parameter, I think, that has been set by, you know, lots of different uh, people. So that's what I did. Right. And um, just describe your papermaking studio there a little bit. Okay. So I have a, I would, I guess it's not that, it's not a big paper studio. It's about 450 square feet. Um, I have a 50-ton hydraulic press that was the uh, original first version that Dave Raina built that now I think he markets where the platen is on a, uh, on, on a rolling frame that then gets rolled off into the, um, the press. But my, um, that I, uh, was actually designed by my, with, with my husband, actually, Andres, because when I was pregnant with Maya, I asked, at six months, I asked Andres to start lifting my boards. Yeah, and, and loading them in. This is much easier for loading. And he realized that it was impossible. So I have this really wonderful, you know, kind of my the Maserati of the original press of that form, format. Um, and, uh, you know, I have lots of molds. I actually don't use a lot of the molds anymore because I have osteoporosis and I can't use the big ones. So there's no macho print making, I mean, paper making going on in my life anymore, just the regular paper making. Mm -hmm. And um, lots of bats and tables. I have a- What kind of beater? I have a Raina beater. I have one yeah. of his very, very early ones, um, and uh, because I got it in 1988, and he he just started in the mid 80s to make beaters. Um, yeah, I, you know, I, it's a full outfitted right. yeah. mill with large doors that go onto my paper garden. So I have that kind of yeah, inside. indoor outdoor. Yeah, it's really mm -hmm. nice. And um, Carriage House, David Raina used to be, or was he somewhere else? You shared a courtyard. So actually, used to. Raina, before he married uh, Donna, was was actually one of my tenants in my building. Okay. And, and they bought the building behind me, and they live still behind me. And that was where uh, Carriage House papers were for many years until they bought another building, and now it's a little bit further away. But yeah, right. that was, yeah. It was right here at that, you know, I you, you remember when... Uh, Dunane uh, hosted the uh, the Friends of Dart Hunter. Hunter. Yeah, so we had this whole thing going on. Yeah, yeah, that was really fun. Mm. Yeah, uh, what, another thing we share is that we were both in the New York Times for our weddings. So, what year did you get married? Nineteen ninety-five. <laughs> and it's funny that you're even bringing it up because for years, when you put my name in, the two things that came up: <laughs> the wedding and Sesame Street. Oh, that's funny. I kept waiting for when something else would come right. <laughs> but yes. Oh, mine, mine never came up like that. No, that's those funny. Were the two claims for, well, I had a full page spread, you know, thing. It was. It yeah, was, so did I. I was in the vowel section. Right. That's the next case. year. Yeah. <laughs> Fun. Yeah. Um, so people can look those up online. Okay. You can, if you're interested. <laughs> Hey listeners, let's take a little break here and I want to tell you about my upcoming online class called Flexible Book Structures. Do you crave the inspiration you get from the act of making? Love books and paper? 
Have a desire to connect with others who share these same goals? Join me in creating a series of flexible book structures that fold and unfold, collapse and expand. Let's wonder collectively about what a book is. We will create six book objects, the equivalent of a week-long workshop with me in person during this six-week online class, which begins April 15th. Work from the comfort of your own home or studio at any time throughout the week and hop into the online classroom anytime to ask questions and share your projects and get ideas in a supportive group and creative online community. Watch my promotional video to learn more and register at HelenHebertStudio.com. Just click on Workshops and then Online Classes. Now back to the episode. So, Robin, 30 years. So you're, you have this retrospective now at Pratt and um, read me like a book, 30 years of Dobbin books. Yes. And um, unfortunately, I don't get to see it in person, but I'm happy to um, be able to chat about it. And I thought we would just go through you. It seems very organized. And um, yeah, so tell me, uh, tell me about, how should we start? So you have work in the stacks. That's really interesting because yeah, tell me so, about Pratt stacks and it's architecturally interesting. And- it's fabulous. So um, Russ Abel, who's the director of the library, asked me to have an exhibition there. And after being a little reluctant because I regularly have my students have shows there, I agreed. And I'm just, because I really love the building and I love the librarians there. There really are and you so, teach there now, right? So I'm a professor at Pratt. Um, yeah. Um, I run the, I'm the minor coordinator for the their their book program. I actually helped design it, me and three other professors, oh. with one of the administrators, which is an interdepartmental, interdisciplinary program, and which is really, really exciting. And I teach uh, two courses, an introductory and intermediate level um, art of the book class, which is content theory and practice of book arts. And I've done it now for 18 years. When I started, it was the really, there was one other class that was sometimes taught. And now we have lots of book courses. So I'm one Mm. of people doing it. Um, I think I'm one of the few that do it full, like consider myself a book artist full time. I mean, there's different writers who do things, all the departments. Anyway, so the library invited me to do this show and I immediately asked if I could do it in the stacks because so the, the building was built um, at the end of the 19th century. Tubby is the architect, but he had, he, well, I don't even know actually the story, but Tiffany worked with him for the interior pointing appointment and particularly the stacks, which unlike the rest of the building, which is three stories in height, um, the stacks are five stories, ferrovitreous floors, which mean big, large glass cubes with oh, a yeah. metal frame so that you can see through and light comes through and you can see like shadows of people walking above you and there's footprints and all that um, for all five flights. And what holds the, the whole stack of five flights together is that they have these beautiful um, cast bronze um, uh, bookshelves and they're the verticals go straight from the top to the bottom and hold the whole thing, including the staircase. I mean, those are the cast bronze things, elements. Mm -hmm. The actual shelf is of wood. It's an oak wood, oak uh, shelf. Mm -hmm. It's a stunning piece. I think, and it's just, it's just an extraordinary piece of architecture. I think it's one of our architectural wonders in New York city. 
And so I wanted to put my books in there. And of course, you know, they said, well, lovely idea, but how are you going to get it safe? People can walk away from it. It's open stack. And then also, you know, we don't have that many shelves because the, you know, over the years, a lot of them have deconstructed and also the size of the school has grown. So they finally agreed that a portion of the show could be in the stacks that, and then Undrush actually built beautiful custom-made and custom-made literally because every shelf was a different size. So mm. custom-made uh, vitrines that fit in. And so the people wander in the stacks and actually find books. Um, and I tried to place books so that they correlated or had a conversation with the themes or ideas that were around them, but that was almost, it was very difficult because again, yeah. I, I couldn't move any books around and there were not that many shelves empty and, and, and the shelf is very narrow. So only my very narrow books of certain sizes could fit there, but I did manage a little bit. Um, yeah. Right. Wow. And then the one other architectural element is um, the staircase. Yes. You so something to the, the exhibition, you know, I wanted the whole exhibition in the stacks because they were so gorgeous. But in fact, the, the library has all their exhibition and display cases in the, the central staircase atrium, which is the central part of the building. And so basically that atrium where this massive staircase goes up to three flights is where all where I mean, I have 68 books in the whole show. And I would say about 58 of them are in that, in this central staircase. Yeah, because there's 10 in the stacks, yeah. And so, um, so it felt to me that this, you know, this would be very problematic because, uh, you know, people might look at one floor and then and it's hard enough to think through 30 years, but then you go up this gigantic staircase, you kind of get lost. So I asked Russ if I could use the staircase and he was very excited about it. I mean, he became you know, at some point, a little apprehensive also, well, you know, what are, adhesive is going to, is the adhesive going to injure the stairs? Because, I mean, this is a historic building and he has a responsibility to care for it. But I actually wrote a text about the uh, transformative uh, uh, potential of two structures, the book, which is an inspirational form structure, I think, for humankind, and the staircase. is an, In architecture, it is the transcendent, literally and figuratively, uh, structure uh, uh, in architecture. And both of them have pacing, have rhythm, mm -hmm. have sequence, have movement up. And 53 of the risers have vinyls that I had printed with um, a background image of my maps and that I make mappings. and. Um, with this text, which you read as you go up the flights of stairs. It's ma I, I might say it's the largest artist book in the world. I don't know for a fact, but it is as big as the building. And um, it's kind of exciting. I think, you know, in a way, and it's so silly that I'm, I think it's the most exciting thing I've ever done. And it's sad to say it's not on a paper, but it is really quite exciting. Well, but I'm sure seeing people react to it and that's like an obvious thing you, you notice. Oh, oh it's, so, so what is, uh, what are some of the lines of text? Is it one full piece of text or? So it's a meditation uh, mm -hmm. about these ideas and it goes, mm -hmm. it, it's done in sections because the, the staircase goes up and then turns and there's, so there's, the first to get to the first floor, there's three flights of stairs, 10 stairs, uh, 12 stairs, and then five stairs. And the next flight up is nine, nine steps, nine risers, uh, 12 risers and six. So I created the text in these segments 
not chapters, they, but they do, you know, they have mm-hmm. to have a start and stop because the human's rhythm is starting and stopping. And so I, I you know, so it's, they, there's like six parts and, and, yeah, and you move in it. And actually the title of the show, Read Me Like a Book, came, it was one of the, sent, the portions of the, um, the stairs because as I was doing it, I also personalized it. And in some, in, in, a, in one respect, as I made this, uh, this comparison between uh, the stair and the book as human-made um, uh, inspirational objects, since I'm a bookmaker, it is part of my existence to make books. And what is it to make inspirational objects? So I, I felt like the process of making a book is also a way to read me because I'm putting myself into it. I mean, not in right. a personal way, but emblematically or symbolically. So there is two instances, the words read me like a book shows up. And I realized that's my title. Yeah. My- <laughs> right. Right. Um, yeah. And your work is so conceptually driven and text driven. And I, I was looking at the website so we'll we'll put a link to this page about the exhibition. Okay. On I the, on the... the wonderful thing is because I wanted a lot of books to cover the 30 years, I have a website that actually people in the exhibition, there's QR codes on all the labels so that they can whack and they can get to the website. Right. There's more information that you wouldn't you couldn't put that much in an exhibition. And right. vice versa. So it gives people um, entry points. Yeah, so it's a fantastic website. And one of the elements you have is this conversation, like an email conversation. Tell me about that. It's just little bits of th- your thinking about your work. So it is, but it actually is someone other time in my life that I did um, an interview in this techno way that we're doing, because we're doing it on Zoom right yeah, now. Yeah, yeah. Is in 2011, Jessica Ellis Sear, I think I'm pronouncing her name correctly, working at that time for Central Booking, interviewed me in text messages, which oh. took a long time for me. It was a very strange oh. and forth because you're writing and someone else is writing, and so you're really having like double conversation. And that was the only ever ever time that I did sort of a technological interview. And she sent me this the script in 2011 she edited what she wanted and she created the central booking maddie rosenberg's um uh, gallery used to have a, a, a magazine and she did a, a some she wrote an interview there for me okay and i had this thing on my uh computer for years and at a certain point with distance when i was making the um the website and looking for ideas that you know, because I went, what I did is I started pouring through my writing. So I went through all my sketchbooks and all my, my, my writing books. And then I thought, well, let me look also in my, my, sometimes I write on the computer. I found this and I realized that some very interesting and playful ideas came with the exchange. So I excerpted. it. Okay. And my only sadness is I haven't been able to reach Jessica. So she hears this. Please. Thank you, <laughs> Jessica. Because of the, my email is out of date of her, with her. Uh-huh. And I, find a way to reach her but yeah. it was a wonderful way to segue into some of the themes yes yeah so I like how you just had a little bit in each section mm-hmm. um so let's talk about a few of your books okay um so so you have this uh brush piece with book written on top of it so it's like a scrub brush yes <laughs> tell okay. me about that <laughs> and that's not paper either 
it is not paper either. But, <laughs> but so there, there are some books that are not paper, but I would say, you know, out of the, I think I've probably produced about 130, 135, 40 books in these 30 years. Mm-hmm. Of the there. There's probably 10 or 15 that are right. my paper. Um, so I, um, I think you were also, we were both involved in that exhibition, The Woman's Gaze, that was out in Seattle, mm-hmm. University of Washington. And I had chosen um, Hermaphrodite, the story of Hermaphrodite is from Ovid's, um, uh, um, Frank, well, Ovid's Metamorphosis. Yeah. And um, because that was an exhibition for those of you guys who don't know, was, was putting together um, texts from, that professors had chosen with, uh, thoughts about the woman's gaze. And the story of Hermaphroditus involved a, a nymph who becomes, or they become one because she lusts over after him and the lusting is a visual thing. So it's, a, it's an instance where a woman's gaze objectifies a man and that dehumanizes him. And that I thought is quite unusual in literature <laughs> for obvious reasons, since it's always the reverse that right. happens. Right. So I decided that's what I wanted to look at. And when I made that book, I decided I wanted to focus on touch because the eye kills, but it in metaphorically, but it's the touch that does the true death. He becomes hermaphrodite when she grabs him. And so I decided I wanted to, I've always loved brushes. I've made a lot of tool books. There's a whole, I, I must have about 20 or 30 tool books over the years. I found a brush maker in Budapest who was making brushes and she showed me how to make them. She did the production for that book that was, that was for that exhibition. Um, but as I was learning about it and trying to make them and she was doing these, and she was so skilled, it was incredible. Um, it, I saw it as a metaphor, which I'd already thought about in the earlier days of something that it gets handled, something that touches you and uh, changes how you feel. And then I thought as a joke, um, the way you make a brush is it's two pieces of wood. The 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 all the detail of how you sew it and 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 knot it is hidden between the two pieces of wood. So the words literally emerge from two covers. The words are there. The word book is there because there's two tone uh, horsehair, Chinese horsehair, uh, blonde horsehair, and a black horsehair, and it was placed it through the holes to make the word book. So right. I, it's a pun actually. That was a very yeah. You should get me to speak in a more concise manner. That was a long way to explain. <laughs> no, that's great. You added a lot of uh, interesting elements. <laughs> yeah. So, so you've sort of, um, as you walk through the exhibition, there are different areas, and you've you've grouped your work into yes. sections. So, in, so instead of doing it by chronology, which is I think what most people would do when you have a retrospective of 30 years, I did it thematically because there are certain, certain themes in my work that come up again and again and again. And I really felt like that's much more interesting. Who cares what I made in, you know, 1997 versus right. 2017. Right. But we, you know, what is very interesting is when you see the relationships about them and then you do notice the dates and you go, oh, well, 20 years she's returned to that and look how different it is. Um, mm-hmm. So I have a section called mapping. I have a section called transformative reading, identity and the senses. Memory is another one all about women and language of misogyny were separate, but they ended up being in one very large case together. And basically that was, I'm, I'm, I'm very proudly a feminist, a second wave mm-hmm. feminist, even though I know that's a dirty word for some people. And um, 
a lot of, I have a whole series of work that uh, comes from a feminist perspective, but I wanted to have an equal balance of the negative with the positive so that it wasn't only, you know, all the, all the, excuse the language, right. deal with, but also the affirmation of being a woman. So that's in one large case. And then politics of place deals with place-specific political act action and, and concepts. So there's these, oh, interlinearity, which is actually the most important theme, I would say, if someone asked me what my work is about, that's the most important, is also essential. There were groups, and there's books from um, all years, and also some, there's a collaborative work and solo work in each of those groups. Cool. All right, well, let's just discuss a couple of works. So I want to talk about so in transformative reading, you have yeah. a book called From Dreams to Ashes. So From Dreams to Ashes was a book I did. It's an edition of four. I did it in 1999. It is a, a book about nightmares, about the nightmare, a nightmare. And um, I used um, uh, an actual text that I wrote about an actual nightmare as the catalyst for the book. And when I was trying to... Um, create this book, which uh, I, I really needed to figure out a lot of things. And this was actually, I think, a, a seminal book in my, uh, in my practice, because first of all, it was the first time that I did something that complex. It has two books in a case, um, which I hadn't really done before, um, where I could ha have a dialogue between parts. Um, the book in its general <clears throat> concept is about um, the fear of children and the love of children. That's so like, that's the very, that's the umbrella idea, but using nightmares because I was having nightmares about children at the time. Um, and we don't need to go into the personal to know about that. Um, I decided to work with this, uh, these ideas and I have a small compendium that ha it's all on handmade paper and imagery of a month of nightmares. And it's all done in prose, my own poetry. But the main book that I think that strikes most people is the, the, the larger book. Um, I wrote the entire text on actual matches and embedded the matches into a paper. And the paper was made out of mugwort, uh, which is a, um, a weed, a common weed in the Northeast, but was used frequently in colonial times to stuff pillows because it was believed to... Uh, that you, if you slept on these pillows, you'd have prophetic dreams. Um, so the idea for me always had been and continues to be that if the paper can not only do what I wanted to do, translucency, uh, rattle, uh, you know, pulp painted sections that support the, col the coloring and the patterns I want, but if, if symbolically and, and metaphorically, the paper can have a language, that to me is the most wondrous. And in this mm -hmm. time, it was the most cohesive. The in, those mugwort papers are interleaved with translucent abaca sheets that have the, have a faint coloring to make it look like skin, and they have photographs of uh, two young boys uh, in black and white, which are my own photographs that I developed from um, in my dark room at the time. And so you alternate between these dreamlike but dark photographs of young boys to these matches. Um, real matches that have the text on them. And um, yeah, and I was very happy. I, I, at the time, I still didn't do artist uh, do artist proofs. So I made the four copies, they all sold, and then it was gone. And so getting this copy back, and I got it back from the Brooklyn Museum of Art uh, with 
some difficulty because when once you're in a museum, it's they have a whole different standard. I wasn't even allowed to touch the book. It was brought to me. It was brought to the exhibition by a conservator who placed it in the exhibition. I was not allowed to even touch it. Um, interesting. It was a very interesting experience. And um, but it was also a homecoming. It's like, oh, this is my book. I, yeah. I had a few pictures from 1999-2000 and that was all I had of it for years. So it's been exciting to revisit. Yeah, and I want to ask you how you how you knew about mugwort and the stuffing in the pillows. Did you know that before? Or did you discover that? Like, so when I was living in Vienna and making paper, I was going out daily out into the woods, and I was I was spending time with weavers who were t teaching me about different parts because I was trying to learn about paper making. Um, obviously, I didn't have a cotton field, and I didn't even, you know, have you know that, the access to that kind of way of making paper. So I learned a lot about plants, and I always read a lot about plants and what they could do, and so that was something that really fascinated me. And I also <clears throat> had my little books that I made with studies. You know, this is what this plant makes. This is what this plant dye makes. I had a whole bunch of those kind of things going on, and. Um, and read somewhere, and I can't tell you where, but at some point prior to this book, I read that. And it was something that I remembered. And then I had to find out what is mugwort because I didn't even know what mugwort was. And then I found, oh, that's the stuff that's everywhere. And this, right. this is easy. And when I first used it, as in I cooked it and tried to figure it out in terms of making a paper, because it makes very, very poor paper. Um, I got stoned, quite literally, cooking it. So then mm -hmm. I realized that's why they had prophetic dreams. It has actually a very minor hallucinogenic effect. Uh. On it. So don't get too excited by that. It makes, makes you a little sick, too. But uh -huh. at any time, I thought, oh, so this really is true. This stuff that did something to people when they slept on it. So that's right. Cool. Oh, wow. That's yeah. cool. <laughs> okay, and you mentioned that interlinearity is probably the most overarching theme. So tell me about one of the books in that section. So um, just to tell people in case people don't know what interlinearity is, yes. it, it literally means reading, reading between the lines. So some people say, oh, that's, you know, hypertext, yeah, and that, but that's a computer word or a you know, computer world word. And interlinearity is is the, the idea that the words have limitation, that they really cannot completely encapsulate everything that one that goes into an idea or a concept or a communication. And so there is something missing in between, whether it's the emotion or gesture or the gut feeling when it's an interpersonal conversation, or whether it is just the, the whether it is the subtext of what the words are. So I have that's been one of my obsessions throughout mm -hmm. my work is trying to understand the limitations of language as I'm trying to use language and play with language and present the image of language. And Thoughts in the Form of a Letter is one of the books that's in that section. Um, it was actually a, um, I still even get a little personal because you know the person. I got a letter from Vicky Sigvald at one point, uh, and she was telling me a story. She's a great paper maker that lives in Argentina. Argentina, yeah. And she, in the, the letter, and this was a handwritten, in the days of when we wrote handwritten letters, wrote about a, a friend of hers that was going through a failing marriage and wrote me about it in quite a lot of detail. I'm sure she doesn't remember this, mm. so it's kind of interesting. I was fascinated with the content of this letter, and I decided to use it because at this point I was exploring this idea of what was missing. And, and uh, the catalyst for that was actually the 
a Jewish concept of philosophy that's the Kabbalist philosophy of the black and white Torah. The black Torah is what the Kabbalists believe were all the words and letters that are written in the Torah and everybody pays all the attention to and thinks that's important. But the Kabbalists believe that the white Torah is all the spaces around the letters and the words and the between those letters and words is where the true knowledge is found yeah. in wisdom. And so I took the text of this letter and I pulp painted it uh, with a graphite infused pulp, uh, a, a very overbeaten translucent abaca onto a translucent abaca sheet. And I, I pulp painted it on both sides of the sheet. And as a result, you have anyways this whirl and swirl and it's very, very hard to see because they're both sides. But even further, I cut out every piece of white between every letter and every space. And I collected all those white pieces in a plast in a uh, pocket in that you can actually see is like a window in the front and the back cover so that and once those whites are gone you actually cannot read anything before uh -huh. it was difficulty but once the in-between is right. not there it ceases to exist completely and I thought that that was such a wonderful map metaphor for words and their limitations and also for for marriage yeah <laughs> yeah Wow, that's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. And what, is that an edition? What size? That was an edition of, I can't remember if it was four or five. I'd have uh -huh. to look on my website. Yeah. No, but it was, <laughs> you know, again, I, I, you know, there, it's painful to be making lots of these editions. And I do it, um, again, because I live off my sales and because it does take so long to get ideas. But I try to make the editions as small as possible because, the, the ideas for the next one are already right. It's hard to, I get that. It's hard to, you want to move on to the next thing. Yeah. Um, let's talk about one more book then in politics of place detritus. So okay. you can so, describe uh, politics of place a little bit and then okay. the book. So the politics of place um, are, I mean, I've done a lot of politically based work, but I realized when I looked over the, the series of different in, through different times, that actually they were very place specific. Uh, what I mean by that is I have a whole series of work that are about politics in South Africa because I work in South Africa quite a lot and I go, it, I've been to you know South Africa on a regular basis. I've had like six or seven trips over the years and I've done projects and collaborations uh, about the politics there and about the politics relationship to the United States, things like that. So Detritus is a very specific, it's an addition, well, it's a series of five books. They're all different. Mm -hmm. So I, I kept Detritus one and Detritus is a book that I did after 9-11. So I'm the, well, I was the trustee, but now I'm the New York representative. They've changed my title since 1995 of a South African art foundation run by Jack Ginsburg, who's a significant figure in the book world. He's a book collector and a very, very dear friend of mine. And I run his foundation. Basically, he sends artists here from South Africa to spend two months living in an apartment virtually all expenses paid to experience the culture. And that was done in 95 because, you know, apartheid ended in a mm -hmm. year before, a year and a half before. And he, they were so isolated because of all the boycotts. He wanted artists of South Africa to get, to be able to consume the, the deliciousness of culture in New York. And, um, and I run that foundation for him here. And um, when, 
not with it, it's three blocks from ground zero is where the the apartment is mm -hmm. and so when the when the world trade center went down the artist and art historian who were in there actually had to run and run and yeah. escape and uh Jack eventually came a few a couple weeks later because he was on that day on his way to New York and was rerouted to LA actually. Yeah. But he wanted to see if the if the building was still standing. I mean, nobody knew what was going on at the time, right. and so we we had the papers proving that we owned a, 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 an apartment down there, and we were able to go down with police escorts into Ground Zero area when only the people who lived or mm -hmm. lived there were allowed, and. What it was an eerie experience because it was completely abandoned and everything was covered with uh, a half an inch to three inches of dust, which we realized fairly quickly was the decimated World Trade Center. And what I did without even thinking is I just filled my pockets and my pocketbook and everything filled it with dust. And then I came back and I went, oh my God, I, I have this stuff. And this is actually in a sense, it's sacred because these are, these are like human bodies. These are, you yeah. know, these are, you know, these knows what's in this dust and I was quite terrified by the whole thing and then realized that um, I needed to do something very special with it and uh, uh, the the Genisa the Jewish Genisa is a box where the word of God is never allowed to be destroyed it is buried like human beings because it's considered as respectful as you one must respect the written name of God just as much as one must respect the human figure, which is the manifestation of God. So um, I felt like I had to either make a box or I had to make something from it. So I made paper from all this dust. I'm not only the dust, but I used, you know, pulp and stuff. And also I put some bits of maps of New York and different detritus of the city. And then I made five one of a kinds and they're all not very good works of art, I have uh -huh. to say, but they're important works. Uh -huh. And four of them are in collections. Um, I don't think any artists at that time made anything really, really good because we were so traumatized. Yeah. yeah. But we had to make. Well, some people never made again, or they escaped and lived, moved out of the city, or we made constantly. And I was making constantly. I don't think the book, the Detritus One, is a very successful artist book. But I felt like it was essential for the students at Pratt or people to. Uh, remember the timeline since we're in the age of Trump to remember where we were at one other point and right. the sense of community and, and, and grieving and where that started. So I, that's why I put it in the show in politics place. It, it is honoring uh, the dead mm -hmm. and honoring the trauma that we had in the city. So that was right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you. Um, so the exhibition is up until when? April 9th? April 9th. So it's it's up and the and the library is open seven days a week. Um, it's 8.30 to 11, Monday through Friday. And then on Saturday and Sunday, I think it's noon to noon to seven or noon to five, noon to seven on Saturday, I think and noon to five, maybe on Sunday. So it's open every single day. Um, there is a guard sitting at the front because it is, you know, obviously it's a campus in New York City and, but you can enter the campus without any problem. It's the campus is open to the public. When you enter the library, there's a, a, a guard there and they ask for your ID and basically you have to just show ID and say, I'm here to see the exhibition because you're not showing student, Pratt ID, obviously. Um, and, and they know to let people in. And there's been a lot of people coming, so that's been yeah, quite exciting. Yeah. yeah. And so this is at Pratt Institute in Brooklyn. And the yeah. website is um, 
robinamysilverberg.com slash read me like a book. Yes. For people that want to go look. Yes. And is there a catalog? Yes. So I, there would be also made a catalog, quite a wonderful book. I, I, I worked with a, an amazing Hungarian uh, designer, uh, Hubner Dorka, who's just top in her field. And it was, in a sense, it was her artist book because I allowed her to interpret my work. And I mm. love that. Mm-hmm. The essays um, um, written, uh, Susanna Podberg, who's my gallerist in Vienna. She wrote a, an essay, Michael Joseph, who just became emeritus this past January of Rutgers Special Collections in, in New Brunswick. He wrote an essay and Paul uh, Van uh, Capellefon, uh-huh. who's uh, head of uh, special collections in, uh, well, she, he's head of the, I think, 19th through 20th century portion of the special collections at the National Library in The Hague in Holland, wrote the third essay. Wonderful writing. And is uh, that available? Can people purchase that catalog or? Um, they, what they need to do is um, uh, contact uh, or go on the website and then put in their information because the library wants to place it first in um, in special collections because that's their interest that they right. know that they've made this wonderful thing and then after that uh, there will be uh, the next step which is contacting individuals and letting them have it yes right okay. Um, let's just wrap up talking about how you place your books mm. in special collections, sort of the different um, ways, because I'm sure there's more than one way. <laughs> well, that's kind of a, well, the first and foremost way is dealers. Um, Susanna mm-hmm. Podberg is my dealer in Europe and she places everything in Europe even, and I very much love dealers. I know a lot of artists don't feel that way about dealers. They say the middleman and they get half. Yeah, they get this. Yeah. No. My point of view, I want to be in the studio. Yeah. I want to create my work. You guys take care of this. It's right. great. Right. And that, so that to me is invaluable. And she has placed uh, my work in some very, very important collections. And I'm very, very happy about that. Um, and even when I am in Europe and I meet somebody who wants a book, I, you know, I, I'll, I'll score the sale and then I'll ship the book to her and tell her to bring it because I really want to support that relationship. I think artists need to really, really be more committed to that. In right. This- and she has a gallery, Gallery Buchendruch. Yeah. Gallery Buchendruch. In Vienna, it's yeah. next door to the Freud Museum in ah, Gaza, and she has exhibitions, and mm-hmm. and she's a dealer that goes all over the uh, Europe and comes right. to the States and things like that. Um, and then um, in, I mean, there are certain collections that I've had a real personal relationship with the curators or the librarians that I've been dealing with in the States for years, even before I had dealers. So those people come directly to me, but I try as hard as I can otherwise, other than those few, and there's a list of them, mm-hmm. um, that I have an ongoing relationship with or have been collecting lots of my, my stuff. Um, I, st- I try to, to have my dealers in the United States also do it. Um, Bamp and Tramp has been particularly fabulous. Yeah. Um, we're all very sad about Bill having passed away. I'm actually right now working on a fe- uh, my page contribution for a Festschrift in memori- a memorial oh. portfolio that will be uh, being created for in his honor and memory. And actually, mm-hmm. it's working on it before we started talking, and we'll go back to it. Uh-huh. And because um, it's due on March 1st. <laughs> um, but uh, 
Um, they have been exceptionally supportive to artists and, and um, you know, and then there's other dealers at different times I've worked with. But at this point, I'm mostly working with those two. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, I mean, I think that uh, I, I think libraries are extraordinarily interested in the artist book. It, uh, we're lucky about that because they see that as a continuum of what they do collect in special collections all the way back to Incanubula and forward. And so there is actually a place and space in our culture for these strange things that sit between book and art and are both and are neither. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, and it's wonderful to hear that your the book department at Pratt has grown so that young people are learning about book art. And it is. And, you know, because in New York City, there is no book major. There's no art. There's no you have to go out of the city for mm-hmm. that. But right. at least we have a minor and it's the only um, school. I mean, there are book classes in all the other um, art schools and programs in New York City, but it's the only uh, one you can actually get a certificate. So that's a good thing. Um, of course, Center for Book Arts is a fabulous uh, resource and learning space. And I'm, I, I, you know, I was 12, 10 years on the board there, and I'm very, very supportive of them. Uh, it's 12 yeah. years on the board of Brooklyn. So there's places to go. But yes, the, our, our Pratt is, um, has this special um, niche, and uh, we're very happy about that. Yeah, and do you, Pratt doesn't have paper making. Do you bring your students to your studio ever? Or? Yeah. So what I did until the last two years, actually, was I every semester, I had the students come and they did a marathon. There was a marathon day where they could produce as much paper as they wanted. The, day, the week before, I prepared them and taught them as much as I could verbally and through examples, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, because of my back problem, <clears throat> I have dream osteoporosis, which is quite unfortunate. Um, I ha- I'm not supposed to do any heavy lifting. And one of the problems with having students here is they were always slow on the uptake. I was always the one lifting the big buckets and pouring things and carrying things to different people. And I found it very, very difficult um, to continue to have, you know, 12 to 15 students in, in rushing around my studio and doing different things at once. So what I do now is we have a teaching session about paper making. I show them paper and they all make a few sheets of paper, but they're not doing it the way I wanted them to do it. Um, Pratt wants to ha- wanted at various junctures to have a paper program, but they actually wanted it in my studio, not making mm. their own. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'll be thrilled, but that we're not there yet. Yeah. We do have letterpress. Pro- we do have a wonderful letterpress. We have a program and we have uh, presses and, and all that. And we have a, you know, we have lots of different things. There's, you know, pop-up yeah, engineering. paper engineering. I was just gonna say, yeah, fabulous paper yeah. engineering. And we, I mean, we have a lot of. I mean, there's really a huge range of classes in, in yeah. book, but they do not yet have that paper mill. Maybe they will one day. Maybe right. after seeing my show, this might be the game changer. We'll see. We'll yeah. See. Yeah. Well, Robin, thanks for coming on. Congratulations on 30 years. Here's to 30 more. Let's talk again <laughs> when it's 60. <laughs> and um, what a delight. <laughs> it's been a treat. Okay. Thank, Thank you. you. Hey, paper friends. Did you know that I write a weekly blog called The Sunday Paper, featuring stories of people doing exciting, innovative, and beautiful things with paper? Sign up at HelenHebertStudio.com slash blog. I'm also creating a lot of content over here, 
and the best way to stay up to date is to join my newsletter list to learn about free tutorials, online classes, workshops, and the annual Red Cliff Paper Retreat, which takes place right here at Helen Hebert Studio. You can sign up at HelenHebertStudio.com to receive my e-newsletter. This wraps up our episode, and if you enjoyed it, I'd appreciate it if you could leave a review over on iTunes. This helps other people find out about the podcast. Special thanks to Gary A. Hansen for the sound editing and Peter Thomas for the music. Visit HelenHebertStudio.com and click on Paper Talk, where you can find out more about them, subscribe to the series via iTunes, and listen to other episodes and access all of the archived shows. I'll talk to you soon. Reason.